Namo Tasta Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Namo Tasta Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Namo Tasta Bhagavato Arahato Samma Sambuddhasa Good morning, friends. We've come to the last day of our retreat. We apologize for having the last talk kind of stuffed in on the very last day, an hour before you all are about to leave. And in fact, a few people had to leave early, and so unfortunately for them, they're only stuck with Nietzsche and Dukkha, which is not a very fun place to be. And this gives us a really interesting clue into something about anatta, in that anatta, in a most ultimate way of speaking, is the truly emancipatory um, perception, knowledge that the Buddha teaches. It's the one that distinguishes the Buddha's teaching from all others. In one sutta, the Buddha mentions that of the four kinds of clinging, the Pali word for that is upadana, those four being attached, clinging to sensual pleasures, clinging to rites and rituals, clinging to views of the world, and clinging to a doctrine of self. Other spiritual and religious traditions can, to some degree or another, address these first three kinds of clinging, but it's only the Buddha's teaching that can address this fourth kind, the clinging to a doctrine of self, clinging to a view of self. A wonderful example of this in action is the book Ecclesiastes of the Bible, if any of you are familiar with that. Basically, the speaker in that book reflects that because of the impermanence of the world, one should instead dedicate their life not to worldly pursuits, but instead to um, living a life in accord with God's will so that they can enter the eternal kingdom of heaven. So this addresses some degree of clinging, and there's some reflections on anicca, but it's not an all-encompassing view of these three marks of existence. And it certainly doesn't even begin to touch the doctrine of self, being that the Christians believe in an eternal soul, an eternal heaven, an eternal God, that which is me, which is mine. So before we get into speaking about anatta, the Buddha's teaching on not-self, we need to understand why this is an issue in the first place. How is it that this idea of self, not-self, me, mine, not me, not mine, relates in any way to suffering? At first glance, it can seem like these things aren't and shouldn't be related, that it's a, that the connection's not quite clear. So we need to press that out first, and only then can we understand and talk about developing the knowledge of anatta, having understood why we should bother in the first place. It's first important to note that all these three characteristics of existence all work together. One, you can't see anatta without also seeing anicca and dukkha. And so we've been leading up to this point throughout this retreat. This is, none of this is to say that anicca and dukkha are unimportant things to see. In fact, they're, in some ways, the primary things one must see, as we'll get into later, in order to see anatta. In brief, then, anatta 
is the disidentification with the five aggregates of clinging, the pancha upadana kanda, five clinging aggregates. <clears throat> we disidentify with these things, meaning that we take them as not mine, not me, not myself. And this, simply put, is nibbana, when we finally fully disidentify with these five aggregates and overcome what's called asmimana, the conceit, I am. And so, in this talk, I'd like to explain how, how these things come to be in the first place, and more importantly, how we can remove them and why we can remove them. So to begin analyzing and highlighting the problem, I'd like to start with a story. <clears throat> When I was here for about four or five, six months or so, I received a call from an old spiritual advisor of mine. He was a um, Hasidic rabbi that I used to um, affiliate with. And he had learned that I had went to go live at a Buddhist monastery and ordained as a monk, and he was quite curious about that, namely because, coincidentally enough, he was developing his own system of mindfulness. He was starting something like that up. Um, allegedly based in Jewish mysticism from the Kabbalah. I don't know if it's actually how it is, what's said in the Kabbalah. I've never read it, but that's what he claimed. And so he asked me if he could, you know, give me some guided meditations and get my opinion on that. Um, so I, you know, I felt some gratitude towards him, having been a spiritual support when I was in college, and I went to his, you know, house to uh, speak with him on religious matters. So I said, okay. Mostly it was rather straightforward in the beginning. One would develop mindfulness of the present moment. Um, I don't remember a great deal of it, but one time, one particular meditation instruction struck a chord with me. Again, he instructed me to start with developing mindfulness and awareness of the present moment. And then he says something interesting that gave me a clue that perhaps his system of meditation was not going in the right direction. He started off after I had developed present moment mindfulness as saying, <clears throat> you know your you. He wanted me to start basing myself in my self-identity. So he said, you know your you. And immediately I had this thought, do I? Do I know that I am me? What does that even mean? I try and say, ask the question, what am I? And it's kind of an ambiguous question. There's a certain ambiguity. And yet at the same time, we seem quite convinced that I am. In fact, there's nothing we're more confident about if we're unreflective, where we can be uncertain about things in the world, but we have the absolute certainty that I am or at least so we think we do. And more than just being a kind of play on words or kind of the musings of an edgy teenager, these things in fact point to something very deep. It's not merely wordplay. It's not merely a joke. And so to support my claim, I'd like to also give you a quote from a certain philosopher. His name is Albert Camus. He was a French philosopher, and he wrote the book called The Myth of Sisyphus. And he exemplifies the problem I'm trying to refer to in a quite elegant and elegant matter, much better than I can. So I'm just going to put his words in my mouth. He says, Of whom and of what, in fact, can I say, I know that? 
This heart in me, I can experience it, and I conclude that it exists. This world, I can touch it, and I conclude again that it exists. All my knowledge stops there, and the rest is construction. For if I try to grasp this self of which I am assured, if I try to define it and sum it up, it is no more than a liquid that flows between my fingers. I can depict one by one all the faces that I can assume, all those given to it too by this education, this origin, these, this boldness or these silences, this grandeur or this vileness. But one cannot add up the faces. This same heart which is in mine will ever remain for me undefinable. Between the certainty that I have of my existence and the content that I strive to give it to this assurance, this gap will never be filled. Always shall I be a stranger to myself. Here again are trees, and I know their roughness. Water, I experience its savor. This scent of grass and of stars, night, certain evenings when the heart relaxes. How could I deny this world whose power and forces I experience? Yet all the signs of this earth will not give me nothing that can assure me that this world is mine. And so a more eloquent summary of the problem we experience couldn't be asked for. We are quite convinced that I am, but when we try and determine what am I, the best that we can do is give some positive answer in the world. I am such and such a gender, such and such a birth, such and such an origin, such and such a fr- I have such and such a family, such and such friends, such and such occupation. We have all these things that we cry, try and jam into the sense of self. But what we find is that the system's quite jury-rigged. We can try our best to build this idea of self in a way that we can identify, but the impermanence of those things, the changing nature of those things quite undermines that. But yet at the same time, we still quite strongly believe I am. And so suddenly there is the room for suffering to open. We see that which we took as us, which we took as mine, me, myself, is suddenly this thing that's subject to change. And so we begin thinking, well, myself is changing. What's mine is changing. This is terrible. This can't be. And we lament, sorrow, and grieve because of this, because what was mine has changed. We'll get into the exact reasons of how that comes to be, how this clinging in terms of mine brings about suffering. But as a last example, I wanted to give a quote from the Dhammapada, one of the uh, verses. It goes, Putta mati, dhanam mati. Iti balo vihanyati, attahi attano natti, kuto putta, kuto dhanam. This means son, children are mine, um, wealth is mine, thus the fool takes up trouble. Even he himself is not his own. What then of children? What then of wealth? And so this third line, attahi attano natti, He himself, or she herself, he himself is not his own. This is all pointing to this ambiguity of of self-concept that we can experience. We ask the question, who am I? And there's necessarily a confusion that arises. We can try and identify with something, this specifically being one of the five clinging aggregates, 
We identify what I am with one or more of those things, and we take that as me, mine, myself. But these things we see, they change, and so suddenly our sense of what was a stable self is suddenly undermined, and thus there arises sorrow lamentation. That which we thought was permanent turns out to be impermanent, but we fail to accept the necessity of this fact. And thus we try and force upon the world that which the world cannot give us, a world that is permanent, a world that is not dukkha, a world that is me, mine, fully myself. (coughs) And from there then, even more confusion arises, because in attempting to define this I, that I, am assured, I seem to be assured of, we start reflecting in other different unwholesome ways. The Buddha calls this ayonaso manasikara, unwise attention. Some of the ways we pay attention are including or attending, was I in the past? Was I not in the past? What was I in the past? How was I in the past? And the same things for the future. Shall I be in the future? Shall I not be in the future? Or there is confusion about the present. Am I? Am I not? What am I? How am I? Where have I come from? Where will I go? And all these things are called unwise attention because they take, <clears throat> they take the self, the I, that we seem to experience at face value. They accept it. But it seems then If this self of which we are assured is ambiguous, perhaps we are not so assured of it in the first place. And after all, an assurance, as Camus says, does not imply um, that no deceit's happening. You know, if you go to a used car salesman and he says, well, I can assure you I'm giving you an excellent deal on this car, it doesn't mean that he's actually doing that. An assurance does not imply non-deceit. And this is where the Buddha's teaching truly comes in. The Buddha is the only teacher who came to recognize this self we take as assured, actually, it's a deception. It's a deception born of ignorance. And we'd be much better off abandoning that conceit. When we do that, it'll be for our welfare and happiness for quite a long time. It is the very end of suffering itself. But when we attend in these unwise ways, these ways of attending are pregnant. They're pregnant with the conceit, I am. They take the I, the self, as a given. They take it at face value. And so in attending in this way, there's no possibility that we can overcome the conceit, I am, because we take it as implicit. How could we overcome something when we already accept it within the structure of our attending to that very object? That's not possible. And what we find also is that these questions are inherently unanswerable. What was I in the past? Was I not in the past? Am I, am I not? And so on. All these things can only be given answers in terms of the five aggregates, but we can never find this monolithic sense of me, myself, in any of it. We can only try and jam things into the void and attempt to fill them. The conceit I am, subjectivity, is like this. Let's say you're looking at a mirror And in that mirror, you see this amorphous black blob, this void. It's quite clearly presenting itself to you. You may conclude that it exists, but you look behind you and you don't see anything there. It's only in this mirror. 
It's almost like an illusion, a deception, a magic trick. And yet at the same time, we take, that, we take it to be that, oh, well, this thing is in the mirror, so it must be true. It must be real. <coughs> it's only real if we take it as real. It's only real, it's only existent if we take it as existent. But in fact, that's an optional thing. We don't have to do that. We can, in fact, say, this is a deception. And when we find and see that this is deception born of ignorance, that's the truly the beginning of our entering this path of Dhamma. That's the beginning of the cultivation of wisdom. We can see where Camus went wrong then. He says, this self of which I am assured, but that self is not so assured. There is an ambiguity to it, and this needs to be investigated with wisdom. So we can ask then, how does the, um, how does the conceit I am and views of self come to be in the first place? One thing that's important to note, and I'll use consciousness as an example, is we often tend to think of consciousness as this a bubble, this um, standing independent bubble that's probably located in the head somewhere. And through that consciousness, things pass through. There's an, a sense experience and it goes through like that, through consciousness. But in fact, that's the wrong way around. The Buddha says that dependent on a sense object and the sense base, there arises the sense consciousness. So if there's an eye and forms, there arises eye consciousness. This consciousness is reckoned by the sense base that it's cognizing. So instead of having consciousness precede the world, it's the world that precedes consciousness because consciousness is always consciousness of something. We can't describe anything like pure consciousness or independent consciousness. Consciousness must always be cognizing something. And so there's this two-way relationship between the objects of the world, we can call that nama rupa, and consciousness, vijnana. There's no such thing as consciousness without something to be cognizant of, nor at the same time is there any possibility of describing the world independently of consciousness. There's a, a two-way street. And this is quite the same thing that we see when it comes to regarding things as self with the concept of self. We think of this self as this monolithic standing thing within us somewhere. Perhaps we can use the term a soul. And in fact, what we find is that in ancient India, some people literally thought that the soul or the self was, a, was within the body. There was a globe or something like that. It had shapes, it had characteristics, and this was the essence or the core of what a being was or is. <clears throat> but in quite the same way as consciousness, we find that it's not self that precedes the world, it's the world that precedes self. Because the conceit I am and self-view only comes when we take things as me, mine, or myself. That's what gives rise to these, these concepts. And this is called simply upadana, clinging. This is the most fundamental clinging, taking something as mine. 
The Buddha gives three ways from the most subtle to the most gross that a thing is appropriated into a self-concept. The first is e tang mama, then e so hamasmi, and then e so me atta. That means the first one, this is mine, this I am, this is myself. So to begin with, <clears throat> things in the world present themselves as mine. They have this intention that they present themselves with. And we accept that at face value. We say, oh, yes, of course you are mine. I like that. We enjoy having things be ours, especially so long as we don't see that those things are subject to change, which we typically don't. Otherwise, we wouldn't take them as mine in the first place. Then, however, if something is mine, it clearly points to a subject. For, for something to be mine, there must be someone for whom it is mine. There must be an I for whom it is mine. And so we get the second level, eso hamasmi, this I am. From taking something as mine, we then extrapolate I am, this I am, I am this. And then we go further, eso meata, this is myself. We start speculating about it. We, we clearly see, there. we clearly believe I am. And we want to investigate that I, that I and try and understand it. And so we start doing speculations about these things. We start developing what's called identity views, sakaya ditti. This is the most coarse level of this entire process of self coming to be. And there are 20 such sakaya dittis. <clears throat> They are, for each of the aggregates, we can just use form and example. Form is self. Self possesses form. Form is within self, or self is within form. And you can say the same thing with feelings, perceptions, volitions, and consciousness. So you get five times four is 20 of these <laughs> identity views. And we quite, we quite strongly cling to these identity views. We believe these things to be the nature of the self. We speculate about them. <clears throat> but the problem is that the self is a deception in the first place. And so speculating about it only covers up the mystery of self with further mysteries. It puts the mystery in a box so that we can't quite see it. Which is why it's these identity views we'll find that have to go away first before we can address the conceit I am which we'll speak about later when we talk about seeing anatta. <clears throat> a fun example of all this that I, I actually thought of while I was thinking about this talk was, um, I'm sure many of you have seen the movie Finding Nemo. Yes? You maybe saw it yourself, saw it with your kids. And uh, I haven't watched it in a while, but I remembered this scene where the, um, uh, the, 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 the fish... I think it was the father fish or something, I don't know. Anyway, there's a fish on the dock, on the pier. It uh, ended up there somehow. And then these, uh, the seagulls come. I bet you remember the seagulls from the movie. Anyway, these seagulls are looking at this fish. And obviously they're hungry. They want the fish. And so they start going like this. Moin, moin, moin. 
they keep repeating that, and they're all repeating that, and so on and so on. And eventually, they keep saying, moing, 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 and they start, run, they start pursuing the fish. But they collide with each other, they fight with each other, and no one gets the fish. There's just suffering. The five aggregates are like those seagulls. They bark, moing, moing, moing. They wish to be taken as mine. That's how they present themselves. They present themselves as my concern, having to do with me. And we accept this quite easily at face value because we don't see the danger in doing that. We don't see how that gets us caught up in further suffering. So when you see the aggregates doing that, you can call them seagulls. Maybe, you won't be, maybe we won't be so enchanted with them because we probably don't like seagulls very much. So anyway, <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> so before we then talk about seeing anatta, we need to talk about how it is the Buddha qualifies what a self would be. He puts a very lofty qualification on what could be reliably taken as me, mine, myself. And this has two characteristics, as is um, brought up in the Buddha's second discourse, the Anatta Lakkana Sutta. He says, with regards to form, bhikkhus, form is not self. If form were self, then this form would not lead to affliction. And it could be possible to have a form, let my form be thus, let my form not be thus. But since form is not self, and so it leads to affliction, None can have it of form. Let my form be thus. Let my form not be thus. And likewise with the rest of the five aggregates. So in order to take something as self-reliably, there's the parameters of permanence and mastery. Whenever we take something as me, mine, or myself, these two things are implicit in that notion. If we take something as mine, we assume that it's permanent, and we assume that we have full mastery and control over it. We assume that it will bend to our will. And we can suddenly see the problems coming up. If we believe something to be permanent, and then find that it changes, suddenly we're distraught about that. We've opened up the doors of dukkha. And the same thing with mastery. The Buddha says that one may wish they may not that they one may make a wish that let's say they be free from aging and illness that they be free from sorrow lamentation pain grief and despair and we find that the five arguments are quite uncaring of our wishes and so they do as they do and suddenly we're upset because we didn't get what we wanted this is very easy to see with the body for example we assume that we have mastery and control over the body. And obviously there's something there. I can move the body at will. I can change my diet and my exercise and manipulate things a little bit. But in the most ultimate sense, I can't stop the body from growing old, growing sick, and eventually failing, no matter what kinds of fad diets or nutrients or um, vitamins I take. <clears throat> And so we see this, and we take the body as me, mine, myself, and we see this body changing, and suddenly we say, oh, I'm changing, I'm deteriorating, I'm decaying, 
and a certain degree of anxiety comes out of that. But if we change our perceptions a bit and we say that the body is not me, not mine, not myself, namely because it's not worthy of that distinction. If the body were self, it would not change. We could do what we wanted with it. We could have full mastery over it. But that's clearly not the case. It's just a matter of convincing ourselves of that fact. If we took the body as not me, not mine, not myself, suddenly it's not our concern anymore. When there's the intention mine, there's the implication that this is my concern, that I am emotionally attached to this. Otherwise, we wouldn't take it as mine. And so when we change the way we regard form or any of the five aggregates in such a way, suddenly the aggregates are changing nevertheless, but dukkha is no more there because it's not we that are changing anymore. It's just things in the world that are changing, things that are an optional concern. We don't have to get caught up in those things, and we don't anymore because we don't identify with them. The Buddha puts this in a very pragmatic example. He asks one time, he was staying in Jeta's Grove a, um, um, in Anaktapindaka's park with some monks. And he asks the bhikkhus, bhikkhus, what do you think? If people carried off the grass, sticks, branches, and leaves in this Jeta's Grove, or burned them, or did what they liked with them, would you think, people are carrying us off, burning us, or doing what they like with us. They answered, no, venerable sir. Why not? Because that is neither our self, nor what belongs to our self. So in this example, the monks, if they're sitting in a grove and people are cutting trees and collecting wood and doing all these things, they're not thinking, these people are cutting me, these people are burning me. They're just saying, oh, things that are not mine are changing. We can see the same thing with the body, for example. If we, set a, if we set some firewood on fire in the wood stove, you're not very concerned about that. But if I set your clothes and hair on fire, suddenly you're very angry at me and you don't like that very much. Why? Because you take the body as you. You say, Paniratana is burning me. What is he doing to me? How hey, dare he do this to me? This is mine. He's damaging me, my property. But when we see the body with wisdom just as an amalgamation of elements, suddenly it's us. The heat element is very present, very strongly, as I'm on fire. <laughs> and there's also the earth, the water, and the air, and so on and so forth. <clears throat> and suddenly we just see changing elements, things that we're not attached to, that we no longer cling to. Because when we say mine, that is clinging. That is the root of all clinging. Whenever we describe clinging, we can always bring it back to this intention, this is mine, and all that springs from that. This is me, this is myself. So too with any kind of suffering. If we look at any kind of dukkha, of suffering that ever arises, we see that in the most fundamental way, it arises because of the conceit I am. It arises because of views of self. For example, greed. If we have greed towards anything, it implies I want that to be mine. 
I want to bring that within myself. I want to use that to define me, to give this ambiguous I some extra content. And that way I'll feel very safe and confident in myself. They call it self-confidence. But in Buddhism that has quite some odd connotations, don't you think? Or hatred, for example. Whenever we have hatred, we see something encroaching upon me. Or someone is taking away that which is mine. Or that which is mine is changing becoming otherwise. And we're not very happy about that. We're trying to bring that thing that was changing back into what was our subjection, what was I. And delusion is just the whole thing in its entirety. Delusion is saying, I am. That is the fundamental delusion. And from that we get other delusions of satisfactoriness and permanence and so on. And in that sutta, the Buddha goes further. He says, <clears throat> therefore, bhikkhus, whatever is not yours, abandon it. When you abandon it, that will be to your, for your health, welfare and happiness for a long time. And what is it that is not yours? Material form is not yours. Abandon it. When you have abandoned it, that will lead to your welfare and happiness for a long time. And the Buddha repeats the same thing for feeling, um, perceptions, volitions, and consciousness. These things are not us. Abandon them. When we abandon them, there will be no more dukkha because we won't be clinging, attaching to these things. <clears throat> One finds, and this is an important distinction, that it is this, this clinging that leads to the entire mass of suffering. In, in the uh, formulation of Paticca Samuppada, the dependent origination, one finds dependent on clinging, there arises being. Dependent on being, there arises birth. Dependent on birth, there arises death, and sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. Thus there is the whole mass of suffering. So in order to remove that suffering, we have to remove that clinging, which is then conditioned by craving, which is eventually, if we go back far enough, conditioned by ignorance. The ignorance of not seeing the Four Noble Truths, of not seeing these three characteristics, those two things being quite intimately connected. And so, <clears throat> we, in order to see anatta, all three of these characteristics of existence are important to have. But firstly, an important thing to mention is that none of these three characteristics are, should be taken as fact statements. What I mean by that is that when we take something as a fact, for example, the fact that all circles are round, what we do with a fact like that is we put it in textbooks, and we put those textbooks on dusty library shelves, and no one ever reads them. These three characteristics are better taken as imperatives. They call one to come and see. That's the nature of the Dhamma, ehipasiko, calling one to come and see. We were extolled to investigate these things, to know them, to directly know them. It's only when we do it in this way that these things come to edify us and attenuate and remove our suffering. So this is important to bear in mind. Anatta can't be seen directly. You know, we can say, 
form is not self, feeling is not self, and not look at anything else. And we can say that statement till we're blue in the face. But some part of us isn't going to believe it. We're going to say, oh, well, if that's not myself, then something else is myself. Even if none of the five aggregates are myself, then maybe there's some other self beyond that. Maybe it's a true self, pure being, all these kinds of mystical terms we think of. This is why these three characteristics are quite inseparable from one another. In order to see anatta, we must first see anicca and dukkha. Because as we mentioned, in order for something to satisfactorily be taken as self, one must regard it as permanent. But when we start seeing the impermanence of things, this necessarily undermines this idea, this is mine, this is me, this is myself. Because we see that because something is impermanent, it is unsatisfactory, i.e. we can't cling to that thing as a stable source of happiness. <clears throat> and that which is unsatisfactory is not worthy of being taken as me, mine, and myself. For if it were myself, it would be unchanging. It would not lead to affliction. I could have of it what I willed. But more specifically, this is brought out in the, the fundamental triad that we've been speaking about. <clears throat> when the Buddha mentions these three characteristics, he says, sabbe sankara anicca, sabbe sankara dukkha, sabbe dhamma anatta. All conditions are impermanent. All conditions are unsatisfactory. And then the word changes from sankara to dhamma. All things are not self. We could take the word or the statement sabbe sankara anicca, instead of saying all conditions are impermanent, we could instead say all things that things depend on are impermanent. <clears throat> In order to see anicca of a given thing, we need to see that that which lies beneath it conditions it, and that condition is impermanent. Hence, whatever else is also impermanent. For example, with Kant, let's talk about feeling. The feeling arises dependent on a sense contact. When we see that that sense contact is impermanent, it necessarily means that that feeling must be impermanent too. So we're not looking necessarily at specific instances of impermanence, but rather impermanence as an absolutely structural necessity in how experience arises in the first place. We see that instead of looking specifically at a specific form, feeling, perception, and so on, we see that all feelings, all form, all perceptions are conditioned and determined by this other thing. This other thing is seen to be impermanent. Seeing that, that which it determines, that which it conditions, must also be impermanent. That's a structural principle that we're seeing there. And when we see that, when we have this strong perception of anicca, we again see that we can't cling to these things for a lasting source of happiness. And so we strive then to take these things as not me, not mine, not myself. For we see if we were to do that, we open up the floodgates of suffering. And so in summary, the, the most important thing when it comes to seeing any of these three characteristics is a mindful attitude. 
That means looking at experience without covetousness or grief, but looking on with equanimity, within, um, with an unbiased perspective as best as we can. When we look at our experience in this way, we can not get so caught up in the experiences themselves, but rather we take a step backwards or we adopt a bird's eye view. And from that vantage point, we can see these structural principles in action and come to know them directly because we've analyzed them very thoroughly, very concretely within our own experience. And seeing thus, when we see anicca, dukkha, anatta, <clears throat> we become disenchanted with the five aggregates. What this disenchantment points to is brought out in one sutta of what's called the Radha Sangyutta. It's called the Satta Sutta. In that sutta, the Buddha says, suppose there are some young children who build a sandcastle and they adorn it with shells and decorate it and so on. But at a later point, they find that they've lost interest in the sandcastle. And so they decide instead to scatter it and let the waves in the ocean take it back. It's the same thing with these five aggregates. So long as we're unenlightened, we're quite enchanted by these things because they're me, they're mine. That necessarily implies enchantment. It's almost like being under a, a spell, like you're, a, I don't know, some Disney princess or something, and you're enchanted by the witch's spell, except we're our own witch. Our ignorance is the witch here. Seeing this, with this disenchantment, we gain dispassion. Our delight, passion, and lust for these things is removed. And suddenly, there is this grand openness that we can experience, not clinging, not chasing after things, but rather having the opportunity to <coughs> sit with open awareness, to sit with ease and comfort. From that then, that is, there arises liberation of the mind, the overcoming of all suffering and also the knowledge of that very liberation, which is when one becomes an enlightened being, an arahant. Obviously something quite difficult for me to describe being that I am not that. <laughs> so these things are necessarily sometimes difficult to put in words, but this is how the Buddha puts it. One last simile I wanted to give about this is that our relationship with the five clinging aggregates <clears throat> oh, I should also mention before that that when one becomes enlightened, these pancha upadana kanda, five clinging aggregates, become merely pancha kanda. Instead of clinging to them as mine, they simply stand in the world. But paradoxically and ironically enough, it was that very clinging that was their fuel. And so like a car that's run out of gas, they can go on for a little bit more but eventually they completely become ceased. That's Nibbana. It's like a, um, a flame that goes out in the lamp when the oil runs out. There's no more fuel for continued existence, hence no more fuel for conditions, hence no more fuel for suffering. This is an important distinction. Anyway, with this simile, our relationship towards the five clinging aggregates <clears throat> has some interesting parallels with abusive relationships. When one is in an abusive relationship, 
there is initially this enchantment that although the person in question is being abused, they think, oh, my spouse loves me and cares for me very deeply. <coughs> Excuse me. And so there's, enchant there's enchantment with this. You know, when, uh, when people get married, they say to each other, I'm yours forever and always, or something along those lines. There's this kind of, there's that kind of clinging. And there's an investment in the relationship saying, I want this relationship to be how I want it to be. I want it to work. But no matter how hard they try, they nevertheless find themselves in an abusive relationship. No matter how much they may talk with their spouse and ask them to change their behavior, they're going to keep doing it. They're going to keep being abusive. There's generally, it's very rare that these things change. And so, <clears throat> it's only when the person realizes, oh, I am in fact in an abusive relationship, when they recognize that, that steps can be taken to remove themselves from that situation. And eventually, hopefully, they can find themselves quite liberated from their abusive spouse and enjoying freedom and openness and ease. We see quite something similar with our relationship to the five aggregates. We are enchanted with these things because we say, these things are mine. The, you, the aggregates say, I am you, you are me, we are one big happy family. There's this identification, this connection that we have to them. <clears throat> but what we in fact find that the five aggregates are quite uncaring of actual happiness. In fact, they're all just filled with dukkha. But we fail to recognize this. We have an investment in these things. After all, they're me. They're mine. Sure, they may lead to affliction, but they're me. They're mine. I can't just get rid of them. But in fact, the Buddha says, abandon these things. You'll be better off for it. <clears throat> and furthermore, we can, talk, we can try talking to these five aggregates, saying, you know, feeling, if you could be permanent, that would be really nice. Could you do that? And feeling says, yes, of course, don't worry about it. I'll totally be permanent. Anything for you, my dear. And then it decides to be impermanent. It breaks its promise. Obviously, this is just a metaphor. They don't actually talk to you like that. <laughs> or maybe they do, I don't know. <laughs> but these things, no matter how much we may wish, they don't bend to our wills. And so it's only when we recognize that we're in this abusive relationship that we can suddenly begin to remove ourselves from that situation. And that state is called stream entry. When we finally realize the deception that we're being conned, that we're be we've been played. The Buddha said one time when he was speaking to a certain wanderer that he could teach him about Nibbana, and he would reflect thus, together with the arising of your vision, your desire and lust for the five aggregates affected by clinging might be abandoned. Then perhaps you might think, Indeed, I have long been tricked, cheated, and defrauded by this mind. For when clinging, I have been clinging to material form, to feeling, to perception, to f mental formations, to consciousness. With clinging as condition, there was a rising of this whole mass of suffering. It's when one finally recognizes this that they enter the path of the Dhamma. They have seen the nature of these things in such a way that there's no turning back. 
Nibbana is their fixed destination. And it's when the practitioner is finally free from the most, ba- the most basic aspect of this, namely asmimana, the conceit I am, that there is full liberation and dwelling at ease. And so to conclude, I wanted to give a, a verse from the Udana, the, um, um, what is the translation? The, uh, the, the, wait, what is, what, do you, what is Udana? The inspired sayings, something like that, yeah. So it goes, Sukho viveka tuttasa sutadhammasapasato abhya padjang sukhang loke Panabute susangyamo sukha viragata loke kamanang samatikamo asmi manasa yo vinayo etang ve paramang sukanti. It goes, Blissful is solitude for the contented, they who have heard the Dhamma, who see. Blissful is non affliction with regard for the world and restraint towards living beings. Blissful is dispassion with regard for the world and the overcoming of sensuality. But the subduing of the conceit I am, this is truly the ultimate bliss, and that is the bliss of Nibbana. So if these things sound very glum and dark, bear in mind that it merely should be seen as getting rid of something that was weighing us down, a burden, as Bhante Jayasara said. And when we relieve that burden, there is lightness, there is openness, there is bliss, the ultimate bliss. And so may we all attain the ultimate bliss of Nibbana, overcoming this conceit I am. <clears throat> so now to conclude the retreat, for those who are uh, interested, we can administer the, um, the five precepts. <clears throat> To, in order to reaffirm our dedication and devotion to upholding our moral practices, our moral principles. It is these things, after all, which are the basis for overcoming the conceit I am. Because with sila, we can develop samadhi, concentration. With samadhi, we can develop panya, wisdom. And that wisdom is simply these three characteristics of existence, seeing them well, seeing them directly. So, for obvious, if you don't want to take the five precepts, that's fine. It's an optional thing. But if you would like to do that, go ahead and start by saying Namo Tassa three times. Dang Saranang Gachami Dhammang Saranang Gachami Sanghang Saranang Gachami Dutiyam Pibuddhang Saranang Gachami Dutiyam pidhammang saranang gachami. Dutiyam pisanghang saranang gachami. 
Tati-yam-pi-dhammang-saranang-gacchami Adinnadana veramani sikkhapadang samadhyami Kame sumitchachara veramani sikkhapadang samadhyami Musavada Veramani Sikapadang Samadhyami Suramiraya Manjapamadatana Veramani Sikapadang Samadhyami Now I want to read this section in English since I assume no one here speaks Pali fluently. I don't either. Having well undertaken and kept these five precepts together with the three refuges, one should strive on with diligence. With morality, good rebirth is gained. With morality, wealth is achieved. With morality, perfect peace is attained. Therefore, morality should be purified. Say sadhu three times. So I'd like to thank everyone again for participating in this retreat and uh, we sincerely hope that you found this fruitful and productive and we hope that when you go home you continue um, maintaining your med- both your sila and your meditation practice so that you can attain the perfect peace that we've been trying to point to and that we're all striving for in our own way. So just some last things. I'd like to remind everyone that Noble Silence continues until after lunch, so please continue with that. And if everyone in the back could help put some of these cushions away in the closet and just keep the uh, first three rows, that would be much appreciated. So thank you all again, and have a safe trip home.